The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. It was considered one of the darkest hours in the history of the Roman military. It was 9 AD was the year. During Caesar Augustus's reign, there was a defeat of three legions of Roman soldiers, and it took place in this forest. Check out this forest. It is called the Teutoburg Forest. It's in modern Germany. There was a a commander uh, by the name of Varus. He was commanding all three of these legions, and he had a right-hand man. His name was Arminius, and this right-hand man was of German descent. And um, it's actually this statue here you can see in this picture. That's actually a statue of this guy, Arminius. But um, uh, they were in this area of Germania. Now, you probably you may know this time in history, there were m- many battles. The Roman uh, imperialistic uh, advancement was pushing into this part of modern-day Germany, and they were trying to defeat these Germanic tribes. And as they're pushing into this part of uh, Germania, um, and they're battling back and forth, they had built up their, their fortresses, they had built up their strongholds right up to the Rhine River. That's the border between uh, modern-day Germany and France. And uh, Varus was charged to push past that border and to expand the Roman Empire. And he, his right-hand man, uh, Arminius, told him, he said, hey, look, there is a rebellion among some of these Germanic tribes. It's deep in that forest. The wisest thing for us to do would be to take all three legions of Roman soldiers, march them into the forest, and to shut down this rebellion before it starts. It would not only be defensively valuable, but offensively a good move. And some of his other advisors are like, no, I don't, I don't like this. I don't trust Arminius. Remember, his descent is, is of Germanic descent. I don't like this. I think he's double-crossing us. But Varus trusted Arminius and said, absolutely, let's do this. And uh, Arminius says, just one thing. Let me leave the day before you start marching because I'm going to go to some of the Germanic tribes that are sympathizers with us, that want to be our allies, and I'm going to get them to fight with us. And Varus says, absolutely. So Arminius went ahead deep into the forest. They got all their legions ready, and they began marching down this narrow path deep into the forest. Now, uh, military historians will say that the Roman uh, army and the Roman military strategy was pretty much unstoppable in an open field. But marching through a narrow path deep in the forest, that is not their best environment for warfare. And what uh, Varus did not know as he's marching the entire, all of his soldiers, all three legions, something like 20,000 soldiers, he's marching them deep into the forest, is that Arminius, the the rebellion that Arminius had said uh, did not actually exist. They were marching towards a fake battle. It wasn't even a real battle. And the allies that he was going to stir up, um, he wasn't going to those allies. He was actually going to the enemy Germanic tribes, preparing them in the forest to attack these three Roman legions. 
As they marched deeper into the forest, the path got narrower and narrower, and so the, the Roman legions had to spread out. They were so spread out that they were stretched out seven to eight miles, they estimate. And right when they get deep, in, deep enough into the forest where there's no turning back, that's when these Germanic tribes just attacked them from both sides and began to just, I mean, it was a bloodbath, just destroying so many of the Roman soldiers and then fled back into the forest at the end of the day. Roman soldiers, there was, they were not enough. They were so thin, they were not enough to hold back these hordes. And so their, their lines were broken. So many of them were crushed. They were demoralized. They regrouped. And Varus said, there's really no option. We can't go back. The best option is to keep marching forward to try and reach our fortress. That is, but we have to go farther into the forest. And what he didn't realize is he was playing right into Arminius's hands. They marched deeper into the forest and they got to the most narrow spot where there are hills on one side and there's a swamp on the other side. And the Germanic forces had dug in on the top of the hills and created these little fortresses on the top of these hills. And right when they come into that spot, the way the historians remember it is they walked in and it was dead silent, just waiting for them to get deep in enough. And as soon as they'd marched in far enough, the, the Germanic tribes came down and wiped out with only a few survivors that fled to tell the tale back in Rome, wiped out 20,000 soldiers. Future uh, generations of Roman commanders would eventually march up and find that, that area years later, and they said it was like white with bones. It was a massacre. In fact, so significant was this battle that modern historians look back because Rome never really moved because of that battle, was never able to move their lines past the Rhine River. And modern historians say that affected the future history of Europe because it's the Rhine River that divides the Romance languages that come from Latin and the Germanic languages that come from those, that, that area of those Germanic tribes. That's the line to this day, and it's because of that one battle in 9 AD. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because there's a couple interesting features of that battle that apply to what we're talking about today. For starters, it's that the, the first problem of these legions marching, the first problem was that these, they were going after and marching towards a battle that was not actually in existence. They were fighting the wrong battle. They, they were marching towards a rebellion that didn't actually exist. And because they were marching towards that battle that's not really the battle, they were ambushed by the real enemy. You follow me? The second problem and the second feature of this that can apply to us is that as they were marching through this path, one of the things that their enemy got them to do was get so spread out that they actually couldn't fight together and protect one another. And had they been in a place where they could fight more shoulder to shoulder and side by side, they would have had a better chance of repelling the enemy. Now, I bring that up because every single one of us in this room today, every single person sitting in the Cooper City Auditorium right now, every single person, there is some battle that we are fighting. 
There's something that we're fighting. You might be fighting a battle at work. You might be fighting a battle with your kids. Maybe they're young kids or they're grown kids. You might be fighting a battle in your marriage. You might be fighting a battle with some of your neighbors or some of your friends or some of your coworkers, or some of your extended family members. You might be fighting a, a medical battle, a financial battle. Every one of us is fighting a battle and the scripture talks about the battles that we fight and warns us that we, if we're not careful, we might be fighting the wrong battle and susceptible to an ambush by our real enemy. And so whatever you're going through, this is a passage that we need to, to take a look at to make sure we're fighting the right battle on the right front. I want you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6. This is a, a well-known passage, and for good reason, this passage speaks about what is sometimes called spiritual warfare. And we're going to take some time to go through this profound passage um, let, let's pick it up, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now let's just pause there for just a second and just kind of get our bearings. Um, he says, finally, this is wrapping up. This is one of the last subjects that the author of this letter, who is Paul, one of his last subjects that he wants to hit on before he concludes his letter. He's writing this to the city, the church in the city of Ephesus. A little bit about Ephesus, which is actually important for the subject matter. Ephesus is one of the strongest, most spiritually mature churches of the first generation. Paul and his journeys, he spent two years in Ephesus consistently preaching, and they built a very, very strong church. They were spiritually mature. They knew the scriptures. They knew the Bible well. They knew their doctrine. They knew the gospel well. And it might be because of that that he's teaching them about this concept of spiritual warfare. It's not only that, but it's in a strategic city. Ephesus was one of the largest cities uh, in the world at that time and influenced an entire region. This is an influential city with a very strong, mature church. And because of all that, Paul wants to warn them. He says two commands. Be strong. He says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Now, typically when we talk about finding strength in our modern generation, we think about kind of like looking inside to kind of like find our own strength. We talk about like finding strength from within. So let me just give you an example of that. Let's say hypothetically, you lived in a city where two of your professional sports teams are in the finals at the same time. Okay, just hypothetically, let's say that is a ex very exciting historic season because the Heat are playing in the finals, the Panthers are playing in the Stanley Cup, the Dolphins are going to go to the Super Bowl. I mean, it's just, what a time to be alive. Okay, let's just say that's the time you live in. Okay, and let's just say you find yourself, even though both your teams are in the finals, they have both 
maybe didn't do as well as you had hoped in game one. Okay, let's just say that. But what you're about to behold this next week is that both your teams are going to win the next straight four games and they're going to win the series in five. Let's just say hypothetically, okay? That's what's about to happen. And at the end of these series, okay, at the end of these series, they're interviewing the stars of their teams and they're like, man, you were down one game. Like, how did you do it? Like, what did you do to overcome the deficit? Like, how did you win out the series in such a dramatic fashion? Most likely what they're going to say is something like this. Well, I just, uh, I believed in our team. You know, I believed in our team culture. I believed in, in the people around me and I believed in myself. And we all just kind of dug deep. We stayed true to our game plan. We stayed true to what we knew about ourselves. We dug deep and we found the strength down deep inside and we overcome, you know, we overcome our deficit and we won the day. It's probably going to be something like that. That's just commonplace. Now I use that illustration because the view, the commonplace theory of finding strength is looking internally. And we find somewhere, like some reservoir of strength inside where we believe in ourselves and we believe that we can do it. And we look inside and say, like, I, I know that there's strength. I trust myself, my abilities, my experience, my education, whatever it is. I, I trust in my dreams. I'm not going to give up on my dreams. It's because I'm believing in my dreams. I'm going to overcome. And that's what's going to make me strong. Now, that's a commonly, I mean everywhere, like to children, to adults, like commonly viewed way of finding strength. That's not a biblical way or view of finding strength. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says something far more profound, far more strengthening, actually. And it starts by saying humans you are shockingly not strong. You're not even like the strongest creature on your own planet, okay? You're surprisingly not strong. Yet, almighty God who wields the power of the universe sees you, knows you, loves you, and loves working through you, and has, is wanting you to tap into the reservoir of his power. That is far, far more profound. He's not wanting us to simply reach in and find the strength. I knew I could do it, and I just barely did it because I, I, I knew my own strength could handle it. He's saying, no, 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 no. I don't want you to just do what you can do. I want to do things through you and people look and see what I've done through you and say, there's no way you did it. God had to do it. That's what I want to do. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, be strong in his strength. Be strong tapping into his might and his power. He's calling you into something that is going to require more than you have. Okay. He says, be strong in, in his might, which is very enticing. What, what could all that mean? What is he calling us to? And then he says the second command. He says, put on the full armor of God. That's battle language. It's warfare. Like, what are, what are we needing to tap into in his strength? There's a, a warfare, there's a war and a battle he's wanting us to fight 
in his strength. Now, he actually lists the full armor of God in the, the next several verses, and we're going to take a look at that starting next week. But for starters, what is the war, the battle, that every Ephesian Christian, every part of the church in Ephesus is fighting? What is, what is that battle? Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, you are doing battle. And he said in the previous verse against the schemes of the devil. He's, he is calling us and warning us we are fighting battles and it's not just the battles for my own dreams. Yeah, I know, I've got battles. I've got my career dreams and my relationship goals and my, my personal physical goals and dreams. And I've got all these things. And he wants me to, to tap into his strength to achieve all my goals and dreams. That's not the battle he's talking about. There is a spiritual battle and there are schemes, there are traps, tricks of the devil that we have to be ready to fight. Now you say, the devil, okay, like, what does he mean, the devil? Because you say, I, I heard the word the devil, and I think of a Halloween costume. You know, I think of a red suit with a pointy tail and a pitchfork. Like, is that what he's talking about? That's not what he's talking about. You say, I, I hear the devil, and the devil seems like a punchline, or El Diablo. It goes like on a hot sauce or something like that. Like, what do you mean the devil? Okay, let's get a little bit of a backstory here because the devil is a being that the scripture references in many places. And this is not a metaphor for something. According to the Bible, and we as a church stand on the, what we believe is the Bible is what it says it is. It is the word of God. It is true. So we conform our lives and our minds and our hearts to the Bible. According to the Bible... The devil is an actual being, a creature. Was, uh, there's a little bit that the Bible tells us about. It's almost enough to create more questions than answers. There's probably a reason that it doesn't give us this deep, in-depth description of the devil, but it gives us enough for us to be wary and ready. But from the data that we can pull together from the scripture, the devil was originally one of the angels that God had created, spiritual being. That angel rebelled against God, wanted glory for himself, did not want glory to go to the one to whom it was due. And uh, the devil fell, turned away from God and took many angels with him. And that now comprises the spiritual forces of evil that are opposing the work of God. So there is a being, the devil, and there are demons that are real. They are the fallen angels that the, the scripture uh, speaks to. Why does the scripture not give us more detail? Because it wants us to set our minds on Christ, but just to be aware of the enemy. Okay, something important to know about this backstory. The devil is not a foil to God. Now, what do I mean by a foil? Foil is a literary term 
If you are a, have a literature or English background, this is a familiar term for you. If you're writing fiction, you have a protagonist, a main character, and you typically would have a foil to that character. It's like someone who's kind of equal, but like opposite. It can be a good person, or it could be the antagonist. It could be the bad guy. So like, let's take, for example, Sherlock Holmes. There could be multiple characters in the Sherlock Holmes story that could be argued to be a foil of Sherlock Holmes. But one of the more pronounced one is the ultimate antagonist, Professor Moriarty. It's like Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty are like, they're kind of equal, but one's the good guy and one's the bad guy. They're both absolutely brilliant, and at times you're like, I'm not sure like, who's actually more smart. They kind of like equal each other, like yin and yang, like there's like the good version and the bad version. Or in, like, let's take it to even higher literature, Star Wars. You've got like Emperor Palpatine and Yoda. It's like, you know, they're one leads the bad side and one leads the good side. And it's like, if they had a showdown, who would win? We know it would be Yoda, but like who you wonder sometimes, okay? It's like a foil, it can sometimes be, it's the, the character that's put against the protagonist, often the antagonist, that they're equal but marked, markedly different. The devil is not God's foil. There is no one like God. He is the Almighty, and there is no other. He has all the power, all the authority. He reigns and rules. Jesus Christ has no foil. He is the name that is above every name. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits on the throne and rules. He has conquered and is victorious. The devil is a creature. He's, he's limited. He's not like God. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. The devil is none of those. Can't be everywhere at once. He's only one place at once. He's not all-knowing. He's limited. He's not all-powerful. He's limited. But he would love for you to glorify him to the point of as if he was an equal to God, but he falls so far short. He is nothing, nothing like our God. The, the word holy means utterly set apart. There is none like almighty, most holy God. He's a creature that has a temporary rebellion that is easily under God's control has already lost and will one day be vanquished. That's the backstory and also kind of the, the future. But he says this to us. He says that the devil does have tricks and traps and he warns us that we have to pay attention because um, there are times we think we're fighting battles that are flesh and blood battles, but they're actually spiritual battles. It's much like that battle story we heard at the beginning. We're being lied to and said, yeah, here's the battle, and we start fighting this battle, and we're unaware that that's actually not the enemy. There's actually spiritual warfare happening that we need to be aware of, that we might be falling for a trap or a scheme of the enemy, and we as believers, 
This may, not, this may be a subject you're very interested in. This may be a subject that you're not interested in at all. It may be a subject that's completely foreign to you. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says you need to be aware of this, Christian, because it is a reality. It's actually the more real reality, even though it's unseen. There's spiritual warfare happening that we need to be aware of. Okay. Now we're going to pause at verse 12 for today and we're just going to take these concepts and, and take them a little deeper. Okay, wh what is this passage telling us? Here's the first thing that this passage, if you're taking notes, I want you to jot, jot this down. The first thing is the spirit realm is real. This is a, there are real battles. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 5, 8. This is a, so this is, we're reading Paul to the Ephesians. This is Peter, another author, writing something similar. Look what he says. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He says, Christians, you may say, like, I, I, this kind of subject kind of like freaks me out. It's kind of, kind of scares me. It makes me uncomfortable. Peter say, doesn't say be scared. Don't be scared. Be strong in his might, but be watchful. Be sobered about it. Don't be consumed by it, but have a, a clear mind about the reality of spiritual warfare. It is something that's real. I love how um, C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest thinkers of the, the 20th century. And he wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia, many other books, and one of his most famous ones is called The Screwtape Letters. And it's a subject that kind of pushes into the idea of what are the schemes and traps of the enemy. And right in his preface, it's one of the first things he says. I'm just going to read this to you. Here's what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, meaning humans, can fall, fall into about spiritual warfare or the demonic. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that's the enemy, are equally pleased by both errors. In other words, let me, let me just rephrase. What is he saying? He's saying there's two, and I think he's right on this. There are two errors we can fall into. One error is to just pay no attention and pretend like the spirit realm doesn't exist. We don't get it. You say, I'm more of a scientific person. That stuff just seems like fantasy, but you know, it's, it's in the Bible. So like some people just completely ignore it. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's real or I don't like to think about it. It's uncomfortable. That's one error. The other error is to be too interested, fascinated. And actually what can end up happening is we're setting our minds not on Christ, but overly fascinated with the, the warfare side and the enemy. And what C.S. Lewis says, and I think he's right, is either way can play into the enemy's hands. The balance that the scripture strikes is, look, we're going to set our minds on Jesus. We're going to be consumed with the glory and beauty and power of our God who holds all the power of the universe and yet amazingly sacrificed himself for our salvation and rose again in power and is, has all joy and beauty and all the things that are, are good and pleasant flow from him. And we're going to set our minds on God who has all power and amazingly sees us as his children and tells us to call him father. I mean, we're going to set our minds on him. 
we are going to be watchful because the enemy does try to attack us. First thing that we need to remember is that um, the spiritual warfare is, is real. And here's the second one. It tells us to fight the right battles. Our battles are not flesh and blood. Not all of our battles are flesh and blood. They are spiritual battles. So let's talk through this. Um, depending on maybe which side of those two categories that C.S. Lewis talks about, maybe you say, I'm on the side that's like, I don't ever think about it, don't like thinking about it, but I probably need to have a little bit greater awareness. Or the other side, maybe I think too much about it and give too much power to that. I need to pull back and set my minds on, on Christ. Uh, let, let's talk through these battles because for starters, maybe if you're on the side that maybe I think too much about this, not everything is a spiritual battle. Some things are not the enemy. Remember, the enemy is limited. And giving too much credit to the enemy, it's similar to when a terrorist group takes credit for something publicly that they didn't even do. Why would they do that? It spreads terror. They want to look bigger and more powerful than they are. They want to cause fear. That's demonic. They get that move from the devil. We don't give too much credit to the devil because he's not that powerful. And we're not going to let him sow fear and terror. Some things are not spiritual warfare. Some things not the enemy. Sometimes when things happen in our life, it's the Lord directly. Sometimes we're just not getting what we want. But that doesn't mean it's the enemy. Oh, I worked so hard to get that promotion, then I didn't get it. I was working so hard at this dating relationship, but then it fell apart. I was working so hard to buy that house, and then it fell through. I was wanting so hard for that financial investment to be a hit, and then it wasn't. I was wanting so bad to be, to be cured from this disease, and then it wasn't. Sometimes I'm like, I think it's the enemy and spiritual attack. It may be, but sometimes the Lord is directly saying, I have something better for you. You're just not getting what you want. But we're not sovereign. He's sovereign. And in those moments, the best move is not to give credit and power to the enemy, but to, but to actually conform what I want to the things that God wants. Okay, sometimes it's, it's just the Lord. Sometimes it's not God. I mean, sometimes it's not the enemy. It's just us. I mean, I think we can agree we have plenty of sin in our own hearts to cause our own selves a whole world of problems, right? Sometimes temptation and falling into temptation, it's not the devil. It's just the flesh. Sometimes it's just, I was, I was not wise and I didn't set up boundaries or I didn't, I didn't bring it into the light and ask for help and accountability and prayer from my brothers or sisters around me. Sometimes I just... I just fell into the flesh. Like it's not always the devil. Sometimes it's the flesh. Sometimes it's not the devil. It's just consequences of the flesh. Oh, I didn't get that promotion. It was the devil. And, you're, and your coworker saying, I think it's just because you're lazy. <laughs> and if we say, oh, it was the devil, and I, then I might be missing an opportunity for me to say, okay, God, how do you want me to grow? Because I think this was just me. 
Sometimes it's not the enemy. It's just we're not getting what we want. Sometimes it's not the enemy. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's not the enemy. Sometimes it's just bad humans. I mean, humans, again, have enough sin in their hearts to do bad things. Now, what's the line between the enemy being in the mix and being out of the mix? That's beyond our capacity to understand. But some of it's just sin in other people's hearts. Sometimes it's not the enemy. Sometimes it's just that we walk in a fallen world. You know, if, I, if I'm like going into an interview and I step on my shoelace and my shoelace breaks, that might not be the enemy, okay? That's just sometimes shoelaces break. Sometimes there's car accidents and we bump into something. Sometimes we spill coffee on our shirts on our way to something important. Like sometimes there's just, sometimes we get sick. I mean, sometimes there's just things that are part of the fact that the world we live in is under a curse. There are, it's not always the enemy. The enemy is limited. And we don't want to give too much credit to the enemy. However, sometimes it is the enemy. And we're to be watchful and wary of that. So what would be some examples? I want to give you two things to think about that it might be the enemy. Excuse me, here's the first one. It may be spiritual warfare if you're experiencing unbiblical and overwhelming distractions. I want to give you an example. Some of these, I'm going to give you several, but some of these I've experienced personally. Others I, I've, I've seen happen, but um, I'll give you a personal example. There may be times that you're experiencing overwhelming, like just sudden and overwhelming discouragement and hopelessness. One Sunday morning, I, uh, I was across the parking lot here at the West Pines campus. I was in my office and I get here early, I spend time in prayer, then I run through my message and then uh, come to, over across the parking lot to get ready for the service. And I was in my morning prayer time. And as I'm praying, I'm journaling, uh, this overwhelming discouragement and hopelessness and dread just descended on me. But I didn't even realize what was happening. But I, I just, never before had I felt like something like that, never again have I felt something like that. I felt so hopeless that for the first and only time, I was actually, uh, I just needed to run, I felt like I just needed to run away. I actually had the thought, I'm gonna call one of the other pastors and say, look, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're gonna preach in a couple hours, but I'm out of here, you're gonna have to figure it out. And I, I was just feeling this, this crowding down, this sinking feeling of hopelessness and discouragement, and suddenly um, it struck me, what is this? And I realized, I think I'm being spiritually attacked. And I started to push into that in prayer. Like, why would I be spiritually attacked? And all of a sudden, the Lord just gave me uh, insight into um, there was something we were going to touch on in the, in the service that I think was, a, was something the enemy was threatened by. And so I began to like think about that, I actually stopped and just rewrote the entire message, taught a different passage, different thing, and squared up to what the enemy was not wanting uh, us to deal with as a church and pushed into that. And, and by the time I was done rewriting the sermon, I was like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to share. What was happening? It was just overwhelming, ungodly thoughts of discouragement. Why would I have a spirit of, of discouragement and hopelessness? I have a living hope in Jesus Christ. Sometimes there's that kind of thing. It could be discouragement and, and hopelessness. It could be temptation. 
maybe a temptation from your past that you've overcome, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it comes strong on, on you. Sometimes that's the flesh, but sometimes it's so overwhelming that you're like, this is not just the flesh. It could be not just temptation. It could be overwhelming anger and bitterness. I mean, even Ephesians talks about that earlier in this book. It says, be, be wary of bitterness because you're giving a foothold to the devil. If there's unresolved stuff, the devil can get a hold of that and, and just go to a town with that. It, it could, um, it's, it's not just those things. It can be shame overwhelming, suddenly insecurity and shame, not just because you made a mistake, but now you are that mistake. And you just feel terrible about yourself so far from God. I mean, these are things that are not godly that all of a sudden can come upon you. It could be overwhelming fear, just paralyzing fear. And so be watchful because sometimes there's unbiblical and overwhelming distractions. Here's the second part. It can be disproportionate and timely opposition. Sometimes you're aware that it's spiritual warfare because of the timing. I want you to imagine um, maybe it was a family that was super involved, came regularly, and then at the 2020 uh, shutdown, they, you know, we were all, all watching at home, and then um, 2021 came along, 2022, and they had just gotten in a habit of not coming back to church, and they're watching here and there online, but this conviction starts like, what am I doing? I used to be so involved, like I've not, I'm not back involved, and I'm, I'm realizing I'm missing this, I'm, I'm limping along spiritually, I need my, uh, a spiritual family around me, and so they, st they kind of talk about it as a couple, like All right, we need to get back to church as a family. And as they approach that weekend, that is a timely moment that the enemy does not want them back. So maybe they throw, she, it, he throws shame at them. And they're like, what are people going to think when I come back? They're going to be like, where have you been? And, and like, look, you're such a bad Christian. And they're just wallowing in that insecurity and shame and that guilt. And they don't feel like they can come back. And sometimes he uses that to keep them isolated. It's timely. Or maybe it's another step forward that you're about to take spiritually. It can sometimes, the Bible talks about someone who puts their faith in Jesus and it's like a seed that's cast on the, uh, in the soil of their hearts, the enemy, and they have an incredible experience when Sunday morning they respond to the gospel and they raise their hand or they get a Bible or they, and they, they take that step of faith and then the enemy swoops in and tries to throw everything he can to discourage them and distract them and to keep them from walking in that faith. Or maybe someone's trying to turn their faith back to the Lord. Or, or maybe they, you, you take a step of leadership and you, you're about to step in to lead a small group or a ministry or take a, a leadership at, at, your, at your work that you're going to leverage for the kingdom of God. And then the enemy throws something at you, just this, uh, this timely attack to discourage you. Or maybe you're about to take a step and you've been praying about something to reach our city like foster care. And that couple that starts praying about, well, what are we supposed to do? Maybe we're supposed to be a family, uh, a foster family. And all of a sudden, he throws something in your marriage. Disproportionate. It's hard to see, but it doesn't even reflect reality. Or something, some discouragement. Sometimes it's that timeliness of it. They were like, wait a minute, is this, is this the enemy? And he said, well, what do you do? We're going to be talking about this for the next few weeks. But let's just say, start with this. 
what do you do if you're wondering and thinking that I may be experiencing spiritual warfare? Because Christian, the Bible tells every one of us to watch for this. And as you are stepping into your calling as a city changer, influencing people in your neighborhood and your work and your friend group and your family, as you're taking steps forward in your marriage and as parents to raise up a godly family, as you're taking steps forward to answering the call on your life, the enemy is not going to go quietly and let you further the kingdom of God. So be watchful. What do you do? Look what James 4 verse 7 says it like this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When you think you might be dealing with spiritual warfare, you turn your attention to that part of the battle and you start praying against that part of the battle. You ask for protection and strength from God and you ask for strength and prayer from your brothers and sisters around you. This is why it's so important, Christian, that you have people in your life that you can text, hey, I'm struggling right now. I may be getting spiritually attacked even. Pray for me. You need that person in your life. You need a small group in your life where you have men, you have brothers, ladies, you have sisters that you can ask for prayer. I can tell you there have been times in my life I have felt spiritual attack and I have prayed and prayed and prayed and asked for relief and then I sent one text to a godly Christian brother in Christ and the moment they joined the battle, it lifted dramatically. One of the tactics of the enemy is to get us so spread out along the battle lines that we can't protect and defend each other. We pray for each other and we find strength in the Lord. Why do we find strength in the Lord? Because he wields all the power and he has all the victory. Do you realize, Christian, at the center of the gospel, one one theologian put it like this, at the center of the gospel, almighty God, Jesus tricked the trickster. He schemed the schemer. He trapped the trapper. The devil thought he had won the greatest victory. The son of God, the author of life, had died on the cross with all the guilt and shame of the world on him. But little did he dare believe that Jesus is so powerful that he defeated sin, death, and evil and came back to life holding the keys of death and Hades. And he is building his church and the gates of hell itself cannot stand against. Believe that, Christian? Don't walk in fear, Christian. Don't walk in fear. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you were left to yourself, of course, we'd be in trouble. But you have the power of the living spirit of God inside of you. Lean on his strength and the power of his might. Let's link arms together and let's continue fighting the battle and furthering the kingdom of God together, reaching our city by revealing Jesus Christ. 
Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are looking to you. You have all power. Make us aware of the spiritual battles we are fighting. Thank you for your calling to fight the battles. That is the real battles we're in. They're the more real battles that we're fighting. Thank you for calling us into that battle. And thank you for winning. Thank you for defeating sin and death. Lord, and we walk in that victory. We don't walk in the accusations and lies of the enemy. We walk in the sure footing. Uh, We carry the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus over our lives. You are the victor, the ultimate victor. You've already won the victory, and that victory is playing out in in this world. It's playing out in our lives. It's playing out in our families. It's playing out in our marriages. And we want to see that victory. So make us aware of those battles, we pray. Lord, I pray for anyone here who says, I don't know that I have the victory of Jesus in my life. I know that I'm, I've got sin. I know that I'm messed up, but I'm just trying to live so that I have God's approval. Except I'm trying to win the religious, spiritual, Christian victory of salvation. I'm trying to win the victory with all of my hard work by doing all my spiritual chores and being a good Christian and being a good person and being a religious person. I'm trying to win the victory. I pray, that, I pray that right now they would surrender and accept the victory that you won for them. Listen, if that was you and you're the one that's trying to win the victory for yourself, can I lead you in a prayer where you surrender and accept the victory Jesus won for you? He won your salvation. Receive that victory today. If that was you, just make this your prayer right there where you're at. Just say, Jesus, just silently say this to him. Jesus, I surrender to you. You won the victory of my salvation. You defeated my sin. You defeated death. I will live forever in heaven. In Jesus' name. Listen, if that was your prayer just then, if you received the victory Jesus won on your behalf, what I want you to do before you leave today, please, I want you to walk into that, that front lobby and I want you to go to that guest services and ask them for a Bible. We're gonna give you a Bible today. Say today, hey, could I have a Bible? I, I put my faith in Jesus today. Jesus became my savior. Just say, may I have a Bible today? And I'll, before you leave, go get a Bible. That's our gift to you. We wanna celebrate with you. If you're watching online, just go to cityrev.org faith and just fill out your information so we can send you a Bible. We will mail that Bible to you as our gift and our celebration of the step that you just took. Church, we're gonna close today and we are gonna set our minds on Jesus. It's all powerful, most holy. It doesn't matter what we face. We lift up the name of Jesus. We lift up our praise to Jesus. He's the one that we worship. Let's set our minds on him. Stand with me as we celebrate the victory we have in Jesus. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.